Welcome back to our study of the Gospel of John. Uh, it, we are working toward getting back to where we left off last spring for when we have our in-person Bible classes. So I may have another video later this week to get us into John chapter 6. And I think it was right around John 6 or 7 where we left off. So let's not waste any more time. Uh, we're at John 4, 43 to 54, uh, the end of John chapter 3. And in this section, we will have our Who is Jesus moment, uh, where Jesus reveals with his words and his works who he truly is. Uh, but it's also a time for us to uh, talk about the relationships of the four Gospels with each other. Back in our introduction lesson, I talked about how Matthew, Mark, and Luke are called the synoptic Gospels because they look optic. They look at the, the life of Christ from the same angle. or They look together. That's where it's synoptic comes from. They look together. Uh, and sometimes they are so close in the angle that they're looking at the life of Christ, you almost have a word-for-word -word following of the life of Christ. You could read from Matthew and follow along in Luke almost word-for-word. -word. And that's the relationship of Matthew, Mark, and Luke. John has some parallels. John talks about the feeding of the 5,000. John is very close in parts of the Passion history, but he's never word for word. He's looking at these things from a different angle. Um, we have to distinguish also between parallel accounts, and you'll see a lot of those in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and things that we would have to say maybe are near parallels or that are similar accounts. And at the end of John chapter 4, we have one of those. Uh, we have uh, John 4, 43 to 54, Jesus heals an officer's son. And that is very similar to a passage passages in Matthew and Luke. In Matthew 8 and Luke 7, uh, there is Jesus heals a centurion's servant. Now, are these parallels? Are these talking about the same thing? Well, uh, there's the connection to Capernaum. There's some kind of official who has a servant or a son who is sick. Jesus heals the servant or son long distance, and it's reported later the person was healed at the moment Jesus spoke. Those are the similarities. And so Matthew and Luke are, follow each other very closely, so we're certain they're talking about the same account. Uh, if you compare them, you find there are some significant differences. Uh, in Matthew and Luke, 
Where is Jesus? He's either in Capernaum or entering Capernaum. In John 4:46, where is Jesus? Jesus came again to Cana in Galilee. And so it starts out, Jesus is in a different place. Uh, in Matthew 8 and Luke 7, who is it that has a sick person that they're concerned about? In Matthew and Luke, it's a centurion. In John, uh, i got to scroll this up here. Uh, in John, it's a royal official. Now, could a centurion also be a royal official? I think we could say that that is a possibility. In Galilee, Herod would have been the royalty, uh, and the Herods did, ha he was kind of a governor for the Romans of the province of Galilee. Uh, so a centurion could be a royal official, but this is not the centurion from Matthew and Luke. In Matthew 8 and Luke 7, who is sick? It's a centurion's servant. Uh, in John 8:47, who is sick? Uh, well, here it says his son. And later on, the royal official calls him my little boy. And if we look at the Greek, the word is pais. Unfortunately, in our time, we know the Greek word pais, the genitive or the, inflect, the inflected form is paidos. Unfortunately, we know that word as the root word of the word pedophile. Uh, it's talking about a small child, a young child. And it is true that in the Roman world that nobles would adopt a servant or a slave to give them uh, higher status, but it's very doubtful that a servant whom his master valued highly would be called my little boy. So this is a different account, definitely. Another difference is that in Matthew and Luke, the emphasis is on the centurion's faith. Jesus says, I tell you the truth, I have not found such faith even in Israel. And I think it's in Matthew that Jesus says, people are going to come from the east and the west and sit at the banquet uh, hall of the kingdom of God. Uh, and those from Israel uh, will be left out because they didn't believe. And Jesus commends the centurion's faith. Uh, John has a different emphasis. And John's emphasis, as we've seen, is always on the person of Jesus. Who is Jesus? Uh, Jesus is the powerful Son of God who can heal with a word long distance. That's who Jesus is. So let's read the text 
now that we've established, this is a different uh, occasion than Jesus heals the centurion's servant. And if we follow Luke, um, it seems like the centurion's servant being healed happened sometime after this, and that would fit with uh, what it says in Luke that the centurion had heard of Jesus, probably from this royal official. Uh, my servant is sick, what shall I do? Well, Jesus healed my son. The centurion had heard of Jesus. So, here we are with the text. After two days, that, remember we were, had Jesus at the, the well with the Samaritan woman, Jesus spends two days with the Samaritans teaching them. And now, after two days of teaching the Samaritans, Jesus left for Galilee. Now, Jesus himself had testified that a prophet is not honored in his own country. Uh, this has some parallel points to Mark and Luke. Uh, Mark chapter 6 and Luke chapter 4. In Luke chapter 4, Jesus goes back to Nazareth, and at first it's welcoming. Uh, the people in Nazareth, his own town, say, oh, doesn't he speak graciously? And then they start saying, isn't this the carpenter's son? And then it starts out as welcoming, but then Jesus says, you just want to see some miracles, don't you? Physicians, heal yourself. Do the same kind of thing here you did in Capernaum. And then the people get mad, and then they want to throw him off a cliff. And so Jesus had testified that a prophet is not honored in his home country. That has some parallel points to Matthew and, uh, or to Luke and Mark. Uh, here in John 4.45, he seems to get a nice welcome. The Galileans welcome him. They saw the things he had done in the festival at Jerusalem because they had also gone to the festival. Jesus came again to Cana in Galilee, where he had turned the water into wine. In Capernaum, there was a certain royal official whose son was sick. When this man heard that Jesus had come from Judea in Galilee, he went to him and begged him to come down and heal his son, because his son was about to die. Jesus told him, unless you people see miraculous signs and wonders, you will certainly not believe sounds a little bit like Jesus in the synagogue at Nazareth. Uh, do for us here what you did in, in Jerusalem, what you did in Galilee. Uh, unless you see miraculous signs and wonders, you will certainly not believe. The royal official said to him, Lord, come down before my little boy dies. Go, Jesus told him, your son is going to live. The man believed this word that Jesus spoke to him and left. Already as he was going down, his servants met him with the news that his boy was going to live. So he asked them what time his son got better. They told him, yesterday at the seventh hour, the fever left him. Then the father realized that was the exact time when Jesus had told him, your son is going to live. And he himself and his whole household believed. 
This was the second miraculous sign Jesus did after he came from Judea in, into Galilee. Okay. Um, later here, it's mentioned that this son had a fever and we have the urgency in verse 49 Lord come before uh, my little boy dies uh, something we may not realize in our time is that fevers at one time could be deadly they still can be if they're untreated but this was a time before aspirin and Tylenol and just to bring it to our time or closer to our time, uh, a family story in, in my family was about uh, my great aunt Ethel. Uh, my great aunt Ethel died in 1912 at the age of six because she had a fever. Uh, so it wasn't that long ago well, that's a hundred and uh, hundred and eight years ago uh, that uh, people could die of fever. Still can if it's untreated, uh, but then uh, no other treatment. Remember an ex episode of Gunsmoke, I think, where this girl has a fever and is dying of fever, and then uh, an Indian picks the girl up and takes her to the horse watering trough and puts her in the cold water to try to save her. That would have been the only treatment that was available. Uh, in verse 50 it says, The man believed this word Jesus spoke to him and left. The man came to Jesus in faith. He had heard what Jesus had done. He comes in faith trusting that Jesus can do uh, what he says he did what people say he can do, and now he leaves in faith. The man believed the word that Jesus had spoke, spoken to him. Uh, and then this is one of the parallels, or one of the near parallels to the healing of the centurion servant, is that at the exact time that Jesus was speaking to the royal official, and then later to the centurion, at the exact time, he, Jesus was speaking, the person was healed. Um, we're going to see that in the next chapter, in chapter 5, where Jesus is right there with a paralyzed man, and the man is healed immediately at Jesus' word. Uh, now, if Jesus is in Cana, and the royal official has come from Capernaum, uh, that's more than 15 miles away. So Jesus can heal 15 miles away. Uh, people are not exactly sure where Cana is. Uh, and on the handout, I do have a small map. I will put it up here uh, when I'm editing the video. Uh, and there's one main candidate for a historic site for Cana, but there are actually four or five. And all of them are 15, 20 miles or more 
from Capernaum. Uh, and then look at John's conclusion. Uh, John says, this is the second miraculous sign Jesus did after he came from Judea into Galilee. Uh, this is another indication that this is a different account from the healing of the centurion's servant because as Luke records it, Luke records many other healings before the healing of the centurion's servant. So this was earlier. This was only the second one that Jesus had done, the, only, the second miraculous sign after Jesus came from Judea into Galilee. Okay, that's chapter 4. Now, uh, we've already seen... Jesus doing some zigzagging. Uh, in John 1, you have Jesus going to the Jordan. Chapter 2, Jesus is at the wedding of Cana. Uh, end of chapter 2, Jesus is in Jerusalem and cleanses the temple for the first time. Uh, and then, uh, chapter 3, Jesus talks with Nicodemus. Chapter 4, Jesus goes, is retreating because uh, his enemies are starting to resist and starting to cause, tr cause him trouble. So Jesus retreats back to Galilee, goes to Samaria in chapter 4, and then now he's back in Cana, and then in chapter 5, he's back in Jerusalem. So, chapter 5. Now Jesus is back in Jerusalem. And let's read the text first here. Uh, after this, there was a Jewish festival, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Near the Sheep Gate in Jerusalem, there is a pool called Bethesda in Aramaic, which has five colonnades. Within these lay a large number of sick people, blind, lame, or paralyzed who were waiting for the movement of the water. For an angel would go down at certain times into the pool and stir up the water. Whoever stepped in first after the stirring of the water was healed of whatever disease he had. One man who was there, who had been sick for 38 years, when Jesus saw him lying there and knew he had, all, had been sick a long time, he asked him, Do you want to get well? Sir, the man answered, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. While I am going, someone else goes down ahead of me. Jesus said to him, Get up, pick up your mat and walk. Instantly the man was healed. He picked up his mat and walked. That day was the Sabbath. So the Jews told the man who had been healed, This is the Sabbath. You are not permitted to carry your mat. He answered them, The one who made me well told me, Pick up your mat and walk. They asked him, Who is this man who told you, Pick it up and walk? But the man who was healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had slipped away into the crowd that was there. Later Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, Look, you are well now. Do not sin anymore so that nothing worse happens to you. The man went back and reported to the Jews that it was Jesus who made him well. We'll stop there and talk about uh, 
the text here. Uh, it's the Pool of Bethesda. There are many sp uh, other spellings. Uh, some call it Bethsaida. We know that was a, a town up in, Je in Galilee also, uh, or the name of a town in Galilee. Uh, some manuscripts have Beth Beth Bethzatha or Bethzatha. Uh, Bethesda, some people think it means house of mercy. So that's the name Bethesda. Uh, we're told it had five colonnades and uh, on the handout and I'll and when I'm editing this I'll put a graphic up right here uh, of a blow up of that one part. Uh, they show these five colonnades as like a, a square pool with something like a bridge across the middle. And so one, two, three, four, and then the bridge across the middle is the fifth. Uh, now we have a, a text problem, a text issue. Uh, the second part of verse three and verse four, uh, some scholars consider those verses to be what they call a gloss. And what that means is long ago when people were copying manuscripts by hand, uh, sometimes somebody would put a note in the margin and then the next person who's copying it sees the note and they think it's a correction. So they copy it right in with the rest of the text. So many modern scholars consider the second half of verse 3 and verse 4 to be a gloss, a marginal note that somebody later copied in. Uh, it seems to go along with the man's explanation. Uh, when I go to the water to be healed, someone else gets there first. Uh, it's something that does not really add or subtract to anything that we know from the text by itself. Uh, every word of God is important. Uh, is this a gloss? Is it not? If it is a gloss, it really adds nothing to what the text says. Uh, it does help us understand what the paralyzed man says in verse 7. Um, now look at at verse 6. Jesus sees a paralyzed man lying by the pool of Bethesda. He knows he's been sick a long time. And look at what Jesus asks. He asks, do you want to get well? And that reminds me of a sermon I heard from uh, another pastor friend and that he was, I don't remember if it was this text or some other text that he was preaching on, but he, he said he was commenting on our custom of sending get well cards. And he says, how dumb is that? You, send, you have a sick friend, you send them a card that says get well. What do you think they want to do? I think they want to be sick for longer. Of course, we want to wish them well, and that's why we send these cards but he said, isn't that kind of a, a silly thing to say, get well? 
like they can flip a switch and get well. Uh, but we think of Jesus walking up to the man and saying, do you want to get well? Uh, if he's been uh, paralyzed for many, many years and sees life speeding by without him, of course he wants to get well. And when he's thinking about getting well, look at verse 7, when the man is thinking about getting well, what is he thinking about? What are his thoughts focused on? Getting in the water, because he thinks that'll heal him. And so Jesus then says, get up and pick up your mat and walk. Jesus knew the water all by itself is not going to heal you, but I will. Uh, who is Jesus? Powerful Son of God. And to me, I think I've said this before, like with the changing of water into wine, this shows us truly who Jesus is. Winemaking is a process that takes months. If you want the wine to age properly and to be good wine, it takes a couple of years. And so doing this in an instant shows who Jesus is. Think of what paralyzed people who actually regain their ability to walk, what do they have to go through? Well, sometimes it's surgery to connect reconnect nerves and nerves don't reconnect easily and then if they do make a connection it's year months maybe even years of therapy learning how to walk again and all that Jesus does in a moment get up pick up your mat walk for me looking at this as a modern person, to me it makes it even more miraculous. Because we know what goes into helping somebody walk again. Far more than just flipping a switch. They have to learn how to walk again. Jesus fixed that too. The man could pick up his mat and walk. Okay, Then, now comes the problem. This, that day was a Sabbath, so the Jews told him, this is the Sabbath, you're not permitted to carry your mat. Uh, when it says the Jews, it's probably talking about the Pharisees, uh, the people who were uh, experts in the law, and that they wanted to keep the law, especially the Sabbath law, very meticulously, uh, very, very carefully. Later, Jesus is going to say, you search the scriptures because you think you have eternal life in them. Uh, they diligently searched the scriptures for the, the purpose of the law. Uh, Jesus would reveal himself for the purpose of the gospel, to 
show himself as, as Savior. Uh, now, verse 13, I think that's interesting. When Jesus met the man at the pool of Bethesda, did he introduce himself? The man who healed, who was healed, did not know who Jesus was. Jesus slipped away into the crowd. Jesus didn't introduce himself. He just said, do you want to be well? And then he healed him. Uh, now, a question. Was the healing dependent on the man's faith? No. He didn't really expect that he would be healed, but Jesus healed him. Uh, was it dependent on the man's knowledge of Jesus? Not really. Jesus healed him anyway. It was dependent on Jesus' compassion and his power. Uh, verses uh, 14 and 15, I think those are, are kind of curious, uh, or they make me curious. Jesus finds the man later in the temple and says, Look, you are well now. Do not sin anymore so that nothing worse happens to you. We know who Jesus is. Jesus is the all-powerful Son of God. And so he knows what's on this man's mind. He knows what this man is planning to do. We're not exactly sure. Verse 15, the man went back and reported to the Jews it was Jesus who made him well. Is that what Jesus is warning him about? We don't know. All we know is that Jesus knows the heart. Uh, so... Like I said, those verses make me a little bit curious. What is really happening, happening there? Uh, so now in the rest of chapter 4, we have many instances, many, uh, just in every verse we have a, a who is Jesus moment. And so I'm going to take it as it is. It's broken up into the paragraphs here in, uh, in our translation here. Uh, so 516. Uh, so the Jews began to persecute Jesus because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, My father is working right up to the present time, and I am working too. Who is Jesus? Well, Jesus calls God my Father. So, who is Jesus? The Son of God. Uh, also, this reminds me of something in Matthew and Mark and Luke. Actually, two instances in Luke. Uh, one is Jesus' disciples are plucking heads of grain on the side of a field on a Sabbath day, and the Pharisees come and they say, why does your master let you pluck heads of grain on the Sabbath? And then Jesus says, the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. And then later in the Gospel of Luke, uh, 
there's uh, a woman, I can't remember if it's the shriveled hand or the back problem. I think she had the back problem. Uh, hunched over. And Jesus takes her in the synagogue and heals her. And then his enemies object. And Jesus said, if you have a donkey that falls into a hole on the Sabbath, won't you get it out? How much more shouldn't I help this daughter of Abraham who's been captive to Satan for many years? The Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. Uh, so who is Jesus? Lord of the Sabbath and Son of God. Now, verse 18. Uh, this is why the Jews tried all the more to kill him, because, because he was not merely breaking the Sabbath, but was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. Now, my question, this is going to come up again later. My question is, is the problem that the Jews misunderstand Jesus, or do they understand him perfectly? And then they are rejecting that truth about who Jesus is revealing himself to be. They understand him perfectly. Uh, something about the word son. In ancient times, if, if a man was a carpenter, there was a 99.9% .9 chance that his son would be a carpenter. If a man was a baker, there was a 99.9% .9 chance that his son would be a baker, and so on. Uh, son meant descendant, but it also had a sense of being equal. And so, by calling God his own father, making himself equal with God, yes, they understood Jesus. And they understood him perfectly, and that truth was what they were rejecting. Uh, then, uh, 19 to 21. Jesus answered them directly, Amen, amen, I tell you, the Son can do nothing on his own, but only what he sees his Father doing. Indeed, the Son does exactly what the Father does. For the Father loves the Son and shows him everything that he is doing, and he will show him even greater works than these, so that you will be amazed. For just as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to those he wishes. Uh, here we see much about the relationship of God the Father and God the Son. First, the Son does exactly what the Father does. Think back to John chapter 1. Uh, the Father's the creator, but then all things are created through that word of God that was with God in the beginning. The Father's the creator, the Son is the creator too. The Son does exactly what the Father does. Uh, and verse 20, the Father loves the Son. That reminds us of the words spoken at Jesus' baptism and transfiguration. This is my beloved Son. 
And then he will show him even greater works than these so that you will be amazed. There are more miracles to come. Verse 21 says, Just as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to those he wishes. This is actually before uh, Jesus raises the young man of Nain. That would have been his first resurrection. Uh, the daughter of Jairus. And then Lazarus was the last one before his own resurrection. This is before all of those. Uh, and something that we're going to see is here Jesus is talking about giving life in a couple different ways. He's talking about giving life in a spiritual sense. Uh, I've talked about this many times before. Many times throughout scripture, words like life and death are used to talk about a connection to God. Uh, just like in Genesis uh, three, the day you eat from that tree, you will surely die. They didn't fall over dead, but their connection to God was broken. Uh, later in the Gospel of John, Jesus will talk about life as I am the vine, you are the branches. Apart from me, you can do nothing. Uh, so think of life and death as connection words. Uh, and so Jesus is talking about giving people his word and giving people that connection. Uh, so just as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, the Son gives life to those he wishes. Uh, we'll have more of this uh, coming right up next. Uh, verses 22 to 24. In fact, the Father judges no one, but has entrusted all judgment to the Son, so that all should honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Amen, amen, I tell you, anyone who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He is not going to come into judgment, but has crossed over from death, death to life. Uh, so verse 22, we have a, a catechism point. Remember, that's our analysis. Think of lines from the creed, lines from the Lord's Prayer. Think of commandments and so on. Well, here we have a, a catechism connection uh, to the creed. From there he will come to judge the living and the dead. All judgment is entrusted to the Son. Uh, another catechism point is... Uh, first commandment, uh, you shall have no other gods. There's uh, open idolatry, open worship of any false god. Uh, there's secret idolatry, making something a god in your heart, or loving and trusting something most of all other than God. There's secret idolatry. And then along with that, Worshiping a God, but leaving out Christ, that is also idolatry. All should honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Uh, is it enough to call Jesus a good teacher? Or as 
one world religion calls him a prophet. If you fall short of calling him the Son of God and God himself, then your idea of God is an idolatrous one. Jesus is God. Jesus is the Son of God. Uh, truly divine. Truly human. Here Jesus, verses 24, Jesus is talking about spiritual life. And remember, one thing that we're looking for is we're looking for bits and pieces of John 3.16 that we keep, that keep coming up again and again. We have that here. Uh, anyone who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. Whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. Here it is. And something to note here too. This is why we say Jesus is talking about spiritual life here. Uh, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me, note the present tense, has eternal life. That's present tense. You have eternal life now. You have that connection to God now, hearing the word of Jesus. And Jesus talks about somebody who believes as someone who is not going to come into judgment, but who has crossed over from death to life. That is, uh, well, that's a, a perfect tense, but that talks about your state now. You have crossed from death to life. That eternal life is yours now. It will continue. You die and go to heaven. Your eternal life continues there. You have that life now. And so now Jesus talks about that spiritual giving of life. And now he goes and says, if you think that's amazing, something more amazing is going to come there's going to be a physical resurrection at the end of time. And then there's a lot more of that coming in chapter 6. But uh, 25 to 27. Amen, amen, I tell you. And maybe I've talked about amen, amen before. In the King James, it was verily, verily in... Uh, the NIV 84, it was, I tell you the truth. I think NIV 2011 has, truly I tell you, uh, amen. We use it as at the end of a prayer, but the, the word really means it is true, it is sure, it is certain. Uh, so verily, or I tell you the truth isn't bad. Uh, some have said, Jesus is really saying something that has the weight of an oath. Uh, I'm swearing to you. Uh, I am assuring you by my authority as the Son of God. That's what that amen, amen, or that verily, that I tell you the truth. That's what that means. Uh, I'm swearing by my own authority as the Son of God 
this is the truth. Uh, this is a most solid truth. Uh, or if you grew up Lutheran in catechism, this is most certainly true. Amen, amen, I tell you. A time is coming and is here now when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who listen will live. Uh, for just as the Father has life in himself, he has also granted the Son to have life in himself. And he has given him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. I had a uh, small brain glitch. Jesus is not talking about physical resurrection yet. He's talking about that connection, that life-giving connection that comes with his word. Now comes Jesus talking about, you think that's amazing? Here's the physical resurrection, even more amazing. Uh, do not be amazed at this, for a time is coming when all who are in their graves will hear his voice and come out. That's got to be the resurrection of the last day. Those who have done good will rise to live, but those who have practiced evil will rise to be condemned. I can do nothing on my own. I judge only as I hear, and my judgment is just. For I do not seek my own will, but the will of him who sent me. First, verses 28 and 29, uh, Jesus is talking about the resurrection at the last day in chapter 6. We will hear it again and again and again. Jesus will keep saying, I will raise, whoever believes in me, I will raise them up at the last day. And so this, kind of in, in line with the Gospel of John, and John keeps coming back to certain topics. Well, this is the first, thing, first time talking about physical resurrection. Then in chapter 6, you'll have again and again. I will raise them up at the last day. Um, now, verse 30. Uh, Jesus says, I can do nothing at all on my own. Uh, I judge only as I hear, and my judgment is just. I do not seek to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Was Jesus here to do his own thing? This makes me think of the temptation of Jesus. If you are the Son of God, turn these stones into bread. If you are the Son of God, jump down from the highest point of the temple. Your Father will send his angels to keep you in all your ways. Look at all the kingdoms of the world and all their splendor. All this I will give you if you bow down and worship me. Do your own thing. And Jesus says, I am not here to do my own thing, but to do the will of him who sent me. Now, Verse 31, I'm going to go to verse 36 for now. Uh, in verses 31 to 36, we see Jesus explaining the purpose of miracles. Uh, 
I've said it many times before, the, prime, the first purpose of a miracle is to help somebody in need. The second purpose of a miracle is its testimony that shows who Jesus really is. And so that second point, that second part of a miracle, that's what Jesus is explaining at length here. So verse 31 to 36. If I were to testify about myself, my testimony would not be valid. There's another who testifies about me, and I know his testimony about me is valid. You sent to John, and he has testified to the truth. The testimony I receive is not from man, but I am saying these things so that you may be saved. John was a lamp that was shining brightly, and for a while you wanted to enjoy his light. But I have testimony greater than John's. For the works that the Father gave me to carry out, the very works that I am doing, these testify about me that the Father has sent me. So, uh, the purpose of the miracles, and John often uses the word signs, doesn't he? Uh, the purpose of the miracles was to give testimony to who Jesus was. Uh, here we have yet another mention of John the Baptist. And John testified to the truth. He said, look the Lamb of God. When asked, he said, I am not the Christ. I am only sent ahead of him. I am the voice crying in the wilderness, prepare the way. And so Jesus says, for a while you wanted to enjoy that light. People came out to John and asked who he was and wanted to learn more about him. Verse 36, I have great testimony greater than John's. His miracles showed he was sent from the Father. Uh, the Father gave him the ability to do these miracles. That showed who Jesus truly was. So I read through verse 36. Uh, so 37 and to 38 here. Uh, the Father who sent me, he is the one who has testified about me. You have never heard his voice or seen his form, and you do not have his word remaining in you because you do not believe the one he sent. Remember my comment was the problem that the Jews didn't understand him. Or did they understand him and they rejected what he was about? They rejected that testimony that was in front of him, in front of them. They see a healing and they say, uh-oh, you can't do that on the Sabbath. Jesus isn't doing it from God because he's doing that on the Sabbath. And He's showing the wonders of God. They should have made that connection. Uh, and verse 38, Jesus tells the, the result of what's happening. You don't have his word remaining in you because you don't believe the one he said. Now, verses 38 and 39. This is a familiar passage and I think we learned this in catechism class, talking about the authority of Scripture. Uh, and I learned it out of the King James, so it started out, Search the Scriptures, for in them 
you think you have search the scriptures for in them you think you have eternal life and they are they which testify about me um, in the Greek language there is something called in the imperative that's like an order and then there's the indicative that's normal way of speaking and in the Greek language the the word the, the imperative which would be search the scriptures it's the same word it's the same form as you search so Jesus is re really telling them you people uh, are searching the scriptures because you think you have eternal life in them. Uh, Jesus is talking about the Pharisees and how they were searching the scriptures for the sake of finding fine points of law. Uh, you search the scriptures because you think you have eternal life in them. They testify about me by looking for minute aspects of the law in the scriptures, they were missing out on Jesus. Yet you do not want to come to me in order to have life. Uh, you can take this as imperative. Search the scriptures. In them you think you have eternal life, but they testify about me. If you search the scriptures, this is what you will find. But I think you search the scriptures because you think you have eternal life in them. Jesus is telling them, this is what you people do, but you're missing the point. Then, 41 to 44. Jesus says, I do not accept honor from people, but I know you. I know that you do not have the love of God within you. I have come in my Father's name, yet you do not accept me. If someone else comes in his own name, you will accept him. How can you believe while you continue to accept glory from one another and you do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? Uh, that phrase, I do not accept honor from people, that reminds me of the end of chapter 2 where Jesus is in Jerusalem. He has just cleansed the temple and it seems like he's retreating but still within Jerusalem. And at the end of chapter 2, John says Jesus did not entrust himself to just anyone because he knew what was in people's hearts. Um, verse 41 also makes me think of, this is kind of a side note, what is flattery? Uh, what does flattery mean? When people give compliments, that Jesus' enemies, and this is in Matthew 22, this is uh, well, either afternoon of Palm Sunday or, or Monday of Holy Week, uh, Jesus' enemies are flattering him. Teacher, we know that you are not swayed by people and that you're a teacher who has come from God and that you teach with authority. Tell us, please, is it lawful to give taxes to Caesar? and they were trying to trap him. Uh, what is flattery? Uh, it's something that 
somebody says to try to seem more favorable to the person they're trying to flatter, a lot of times it's very empty. Verse 43, where uh, Jesus talks about uh, if someone else comes in his own name, you will accept him. Uh, that's talking about the custom at that time that if a rabbi, a teacher came to a synagogue, uh, what was considered good teaching at that time is are you quoting the right rabbis? Or sometimes they would come with the credentials of a well-known rabbi. Uh, so if someone else comes in his own name, you will accept him. Uh, how can you believe while you continue to accept glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? Uh, they were more interested in the, the, the orthodoxy of the time and quoting the right rabbis and getting the right references from people rather than learning and knowing and teaching the truth. Then, closing out chapter 5. Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. The one who accuses you is Moses, on whom you have set your hope. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me because he wrote about me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe what I say? Uh, the Pharisees loved the law of Moses, so Jesus appeals to Moses and says, if you'd listen to Moses, you'd listen to me. Jesus is probably thinking about Deuteronomy 18, verse 15. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from among your brother Israelites. Listen to him. Okay, that is all of chapter 5. Chapter 5 is packed with many things, and I'm sure I may have missed things. Feel free to email me or ask me uh, if you think I missed something or should have spent time on something. Maybe I can get back to it later. Uh, and later this week, I hope to do chapter 6, and then we should be back in sync with where we were when we were so rudely interrupted in the middle of March. And so uh, hope to see some of you here for our live studio audience for uh, our Bible class on the Gospel of John as we continue. God's blessings on your week.